welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Over a series of four weeks, we are taking the opportunity to look at Jesus through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and see why they are so important to our understanding of Jesus. For Jesus is clearly, most clearly seen through the Gospels. And when we understand Jesus, it hugely impacts our Christian life. So having looked at Matthew and Mark, we're going to look today at Luke. And I have two readings, one from the beginning of Luke and one from the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. And it says these words, so many others have tried their hand at putting together a story of the wonderful harvest of scripture and history that took place amongst us using reports handed down by the original eyewitnesses who served this word with their very lives. Since I have investigated all the reports in close details, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can know beyond the shadow of doubt the reliability of what you were taught. Then the beginning of Acts says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So today we come and look at the book of Luke. Having seen that both Matthew and Mark are incredibly fascinating, I keep finding myself saying, wow, this is even more fascinating than the week before, so I'll leave you to judge on that. But we need to start by asking the question, who was Luke? And we will discover that he is a substantial player in the things of the early church. He was a Gentile, the only Gentile that God used to communicate the words of scripture. From Genesis through to Revelation, Luke is the only non-Hebrew, non-Jewish writer we have. He is also a medical doctor, and this can be seen clearly through his writings. He is a historian, he's a traveler, he's a writer, he is an evangelist, he is such an incredible, weighty character. He wrote, Two books, this gospel and the book of Acts, which really is a sequel to the book of uh, the gospel of Acts. And it is his aim to produce an account of Christ. This gospel is the most detailed and orderly gospel amongst all four. It is also in chronological order. 
The Gospel of Luke is unique in, in fact, it has meticulous history consistent with his academic and medical training. He often, regularly, I should say, gives accounts and details of accounts that the other writers leave out, especially around the parables. In fact, there are those, in fact, many who state and maintain today that Luke was an outstanding historian. Not was he just a good gospel writer, not that he was a good medical doctor, but he was an absolutely outstanding historian. Whilst there have always been those who wish to debunk the veracity of the Bible in any ways, archaeologists, archaeologists, I can't even say it. Those blokes made some incredible discoveries. Let's just pay back for what I said about the rugby, isn't it? Archaeologists of the 19th and 20th century have revealed that what Luke says in his Gospels and in his writings are incredibly accurate and that the two books that he wrote were absolutely authoritative records of history. So when he spoke of the ancient world, he was accurate. When he used political terminology, he was precise. And when he gave medical insights, they were both appropriate and skillful. William Ramsey, a um, Scottish archaeologist from the 18th and 19th century who set out to disprove Christianity but who himself became a Christian through his own research because he found so much that actually proved the gospel. He says this about Luke. He says, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historical sense. In short, this author should be placed amongst the greatest of historians. Pretty impressive, this person. If we ponder further, here on one hand was a medical doctor who had proven to be accurate in both medical and historical research, and it was this same man. So we just see he's an incredible historian. He is a really good doctor from what we understand. But this same man, this same doctor, did not scoff at the idea of the virgin birth, nor of the thought of the resurrection. If anyone had any right to be cynical, or to scoff, or to try and debunk the virgin birth, or the resurrection, who better than this professional expert in these fields? Luke presents these remarkable events with certainty based on the abundant evidence that he received. Some of the content of Luke's gospel is truly remarkable when we, we sum it up. And it is one thing for Matthew or for John to bring forward different stories about Jesus because they were with him. It's another thing for, Peter to, uh, for Mark to say, well, I know this because Peter told me and he can recall something. But the detail in Luke's gospel is more thorough than anything else that we found. A lot of the information that he gives us, especially in the opening part of the gospel, he would not have had from the apostles. He would not have got from the disciples. That incredible information in the beginning of Luke predates, of course, the disciples themselves. And I'm referring to the birth of Jesus Christ in around that time. Matthew's gospel does not really give us a, a much of an account of the, of, of the birth. It tells us about the flight into Egypt. But Luke, who wasn't there, 
who had no real source from that time, gives us greater detail than any of the rest. Luke tells us about the, vi- the visit of the archangel, both to Zechariah and to the Virgin Mary. Where did he get this from? I found myself thoroughly enjoying the study and the research, and I found myself saying, where did he get that from constantly? Luke gives us a precise detail, or detailing of the birth of Jesus, of the Roman census, the journey to Bethlehem, the visit of the shepherds, even the intimate moment of the child being wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. He tells of Jesus' circumcision as an infant and the finding of Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. Where did he get this extraordinary This has led many scholars to believe that Luke, in his meticulous and thorough research, garnered a lot of this information from Mary, the mother of Jesus herself. How was he able to say in Luke chapter two, verse 51, she treasured all these things in her heart? Now we don't know for sure. We do not know, speculation, some different faith uh, communities believe that he did know Mary, the mother of Jesus, but we don't mean that this is an incredible and remarkable gospel narrative that we have here in front of it. However it was brought together, however it was compiled, there is some incredible information here that is not found anywhere else that does us good to go back and read again that he provides for us. Each of the gospels feature unique stories and elements and teaching. But Luke is particularly packed with interesting and distinct parables. If I can say this, two of the the most well-known, I'm gonna say two of the best parables, the one of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan are found in Luke's gospel. There are a whole pile, in fact there are 12 parables that are only found in Luke's gospel and nowhere else. And those are them. The debtors, the friends of midnight, the rich fool, the parable of the punishment, the barren tree, the lost coin, shrewd manager, rich man and Lazarus, and the persistent widow. His research has been exhaustive, but yet meticulous. Most biblical scholars say that Luke's gospel, along with Acts, is the most well-written, it is the finest writing you will find in the New Testament, especially in the Greek language. It includes 266 words in those two books that are not found in anyone else's writing. Luke is important in another sense in that he is the main contributor to the New Testament. Most people presume, oh, if you ask who wrote the most of the New Testament, a lot of people would come back and say, oh, the most, but no, he doesn't. If one is to accept that we don't know who wrote Hebrews and that it wasn't Paul, then Luke is the biggest contributor to the New Testament. He is a substantial character in the early church and in the formation of the canon of scripture. Also, this gospel is full of affection and high esteem often be called the woman's gospel. Luke provides more passages about women than any other gospel, including 23 unique series. Mary and Elizabeth and Anna the prophetess appear in the first chapters, 
And in the last chapters, it is to three other women that Jesus first appears when he rises from the dead. In this gospel, we meet the widow of Nain and a sinful woman who, appoint, who anoints the Lord, the sisters Mary and Martha and the persevering woman. There are more references here than anywhere else. The writings of Luke describe the preeminence and the prominence of women in Christ's ministry as he constantly portrays them as true examples of faith in spite of a culture in which they lived that minimized women and the women were at the bottom of the rung. Luke's gospel, most importantly, describes the significant roles women play in the ministry of Jesus Christ and the future ministry. The significance of women in the Gospel of Luke is demonstrated by the writer showcasing women's faith and service and how important they are to the things of God and to society. He cut across all cultural norms, all societal norms, to include so much about women in this book. He gives them equality, he gives them a voice, he gives them a place in ministry, he gives them a place of leadership. They have a place in Luke that women have nowhere else. If you want to know the importance that God places on women in life, in ministry, in society, and much more, then this gospel. This is why it's been called the woman's gospel. Very brief foundation, very quick quick summary of a little bit of who this is. So with this foundation to help us, I want to very quickly draw out four aspects that I believe that Luke addresses throughout this book from the beginning to end and that we would do well to hear again today that we would be refreshed and reminded by what this gospel says. And the first thing that is quite simple in some ways is that Luke's God is the God who wants our company. He wants to have relationship with us. In Matthew, we see Jesus as king, and in Mark, Jesus as the son of man, both wonderfully divine and yet human. But here in Luke, we see Jesus as the savior of the world. Jesus, the savior of the world, interested in everybody. It is in the Gospel of Luke that we have more focus, uh, more attention focused on the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the outcast, the poor, and the sinners than anywhere else. Everybody that sat outside society, Luke says Jesus is committed to. Luke's Jesus is serious about sin, for people to turn their lives around, but he is not judgmental. In fact, he makes friends with sinners. He eats and he drinks and he parties with them, but he still is uncompromising on sin. In other words, what Luke is saying is that there is no one who should be excluded from God's grace and from his goodness. There is no one that needs to be prevented from entering a vibrant relationship with God through himself. Many of the examples are highlighted in the Gospel of Luke alone. The Greek has some some incredible words that the English language doesn't really have, but there's one word that is found predominantly, again, really only in Greek, and it means committed to the poor, and the poor is not just financially and economically poor, those who are spiritually poor are included. And this word comes up time and time again that God is committed and is looking to redeem the lost and the poor. 
The idea of salvation is so dominant in Luke's gospel that we just cannot ignore it. The words for salvation and deliverance and salvation and saving power are used in, in, in Luke's gospel and not in Matthew's and not again in Mark. The word to save appears more often in this book than in any other New Testament. So the themes of mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation are very much to the fore as we go through these 24 chapters. It's a theme that keeps coming up time and time again. If you really do want to know what Jesus is, it's the famous verses of chapter four which says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To, Mark, to Luke, that is Jesus' mission statement for the whole of the book, because it ties up with everything else. <coughs> Fundamentally, the gospel message and the Christian faith is a message of atonement. This is our distinctive message, the truth that sets it apart from anything else. The redemptive work of Christ is what sets it apart from all other religions or all other faiths faith are taught and held to in today's world. And Luke's gospel takes time to emphasize it time and time and time again. The very straightforward challenge to us is that we need to be a people that are careful that we do not lose the urgency of the gospel. In a world that wishes to sanitize all that it can so that we don't upset anyone's feelings, it is impossible, I believe, it is impossible to be followers of Christ without constantly holding intention and reminding ourselves that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. That is part of the challenge that we have as believers in the 21st century where we like everything so nice, so sanitized, to realize there's a heaven and that there is a hell, and Luke does it so incredibly well. That before us, we have an eternal destination, and it will depend where we spend it on how we respond to Jesus Christ's call for eternal life. This is not some extreme, a call to some extreme fundamentalist or a call to fire and brimstone peach, preaching, nor is it a promotion to talk about turn or burn. If you don't turn to Jesus Christ, you're gonna burn in hell. We don't ever want to go back to that again. But we still need to remind ourselves that the Christian faith is based on the fact is there's a heaven to be acquired and a hell not to go to. And it needs to come out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. I read a, a statistic about a, a church in America recently. It was in 2018. It said that 60% of people in America who called themselves Christian had not shared the good news of Jesus Christ with anybody for over 12 months. God wants our company, and he wants the company of those he has created forever, and he wants them to be with him. God wants, secondly, to share his life with us, and he does this through the Holy Spirit. There is more written about the Holy Spirit in Luke's gospel than in Matthew and Mark's combined. Sometimes Luke's gospel is referred to, not only as the woman's gospel, but as the charismatic gospel, as there are so many references to and about 
the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Simeon was moved by the Holy Spirit. Anna prophesies in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert. The Holy Spirit enables Jesus to return in power to Galilee. And Luke tells us that Jesus teaches us to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he ends his gospel by recording that Jesus tells us, and tells his followers to wait in Jerusalem to receive the power from on high. Luke, in reality, introduces the Holy Spirit in many ways like has never been seen before. This is an incredibly radical introduction to the Holy Spirit. The revelation we have of the Holy Spirit here is so dramatic and revolutionary. We today have the benefit of hindsight. We have the revelation of this canon of scripture already produced for us, if I can put it like that. We know what happens. We know that the Holy Spirit comes in the beginning of Acts. We know that they're empowered from on high. But this book is radical in the Gospels because it talks about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit and what he does. And this is incredible revelation to people who are perhaps reading it for the first time but had not heard about Acts chapter three. It is an incredible insight into how God wants to spend time with us, how God wants to move amongst us. See, in Luke, we see the Holy Spirit as a father glorifying, Jesus revealing, sin exposing, joy giving, love imparting, relationship building, truth giving, miracle working, power providing, and life changing third member of the Godhead. We have a revelation here that is incredible. Luke is passionate about the incomparable third person of the Godhead. And the challenge to us that comes out of that is, are we passionate about the Holy Spirit? Are we passionate about the things of the Holy Spirit? Are we passionate about who he is? We know God the Father, God the Son. But that the role of the Holy Spirit in our relationship and all that he wants to do in us and through us. Luke takes time to tell us that God wants to have relationship with us and he wants to have our company and he wants to share his life with us and that will fundamentally be done through the Holy Spirit. What Jesus made possible on the cross, the Holy Spirit wants to make actual in our life. And Luke is introducing us to a gospel that is powerfully influenced by the role of the Holy Spirit. He wants to be deeply involved in our life. Thirdly, God loves our laughter and our joy. In, that's probably one of the most, I think. <clears throat> in Luke's gospel, there are more words associated with and connected to the root word for joy than in any other New Testament book. The, the Greek word is kara. So, including, so if you include this word and you include words that are associated with it, it is far more seen in this gospel than anywhere else in the New Testament. It would be fair to say that there is an outburst of joy in the gospel of Luke that is not seen in the other three. It's as if joy is front and center in all that Luke wants to communicate with us. It, it began every song in Luke 2, often known as the Magnificat. It is the outpouring of a young girl's heart of wonder, worship, joy, and thanksgiving, and amazement. And it's Luke that gets to tell us about it. 
Then we have the angels in chapter two declaring the good news to the shepherds. And then there is the little, a little further on in chapter two, we have Simeon's song. But there is something in this old man's heart that he has waited for a lifetime for and then he sees Jesus and he sees the savior of the world and his heart explodes with gratitude and joy and contentment and it is Luke that gets to tell us all about this. It is only in Luke that we read that Jesus was full of joy in the Holy Spirit. To understand this gospel, one needs to see the strong sense of the joy of our faith that Luke is trying to communicate. Of course, there are circumstances and events and situations that cause us all to cry, that break our hearts, and I think that some of these things will never ever properly heal before we get to eternity. And I'm not being flippant and I'm not being frivolous, but there is a joy at the heart of our faith that he also loves to see. He loves to know that we are people of joy and celebration people of tears. And somehow we get this balance right, that we are people who live in a real world, but we are still overwhelmed by the sense of joy what, for what he has done for, for us. Henrik Ibsen, I wasn't sure whether to put this in, but hey, I'm gonna put it in. Henrik Ibsen was a 19th century playwright and author commenting on the Christian community. If you know anything about history, Henrik Ibsen probably didn't get the popularity that he, he deserved because he was Hitler's favorite writer, so that didn't really set him up to success. <laughs> but he says this when he talks about the Christian communities that he knew both in Norway and in Italy, he says, about them, where laughter and joy was perceived to be a breach of Christian good manners, where somberness and Christianity are thought to go hand in hand, where Jesus seems to take all the color and vividness and vitality out of life. For centuries, it seems for many that Christianity has often been haunted by the heresy of unhappiness. It's not great, that's not great at all. <laughs> I was saying to Don and I when we were chatting, I remember one writer sort of saying about us as Protestants, as the, from the Protestant Reformation, it, we were birthed out of Protestant, we were birthed through protesting, and it seems that the rest of, for the rest of eternity, over the rest of days, all we've done is protest, 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 and people to know what we're against rather than what we're for. They know what we stand against rather than for the joy that we have, and sometimes we need to lose that title. Yet there's a little known English minister puts it like this. Christianity is the most encouraging, the most joyous, the least repressive, and the least forbidding of all the religions of mankind. There is no religion that throws off the burden of life so completely, that helps us escape so swiftly from our mood, which gives us so long a scope to the high spirit of the soul and welcomes to its bosom with so warm an embrace, those things of beauty that are joys forever. It is always music that we hear, and sometimes dancing as well. Maybe between those two quotes, there's a middle road to, to be found. We need to see that Luke, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, that God not only wants a relationship with us, and he wants to be involved in our lives, and he wants to know what it is to move in the power of the Holy Spirit, but he also wants to be people of joy that despite our circumstances, not with a frivolousness or a flippancy, that we are people of Interesting to note that the word for laughter, in the sense of a raucous 
boisterous laugh as opposed to laughing and scorning of someone, which is obviously a negative. This word for boisterous, out loud laughing is only found twice in the New Testament and it is found both times in Luke. Fourthly, with this I'm gonna close up. God wants to welcome us home. As one reads through this gospel, and the only way that I can put it, so my, my words let me down here, please forgive me. There seems to be a thinness, if I can put it like that, between history and eternity. That there is a thin line, there is a thinness between earth and heaven in Luke's gospel that we don't see anywhere else. The angels are talked about more in Luke's gospel than any other gospel. We see Jesus in contact with his heavenly father on at least 11 occasions, again more than anywhere else, where heaven touches earth and earth reaches into heaven, as it were. The first occasion is Jesus being baptized by his cousin John, and he is standing praying and heaven. And I don't really know what this means, but I think it's, it's about something that there's a closeness between heaven and earth, that the two can invade or interact with each other. Jesus has come, that God our heavenly Father wants to heaven to invade and to interact with earth like it never used to do before. And of course we know that it came in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the barriers separating us from him have been done away with because of Jesus, that he wants to usher heaven into our situations and circumstances like never before. He wants our actions, he wants our prayers, he wants us as people, as it were, to interact with the heavenly realm. Not quite sure how to articulate this, but here on the banks of the River Jordan, the second person of the Trinity who's being baptized is aware of the first person of the Trinity in heaven who sends the third person in the Trinity to be with the second. It's this incredible story of earth and heaven interacting. In the moment, Jesus not only sees a vision, but he hears a voice when God the Father speaks to him, to his son on earth, and he says, I am so pleased with you. I am so proud of you. There is a thinness between the supernatural and the natural. It is only in Luke that we read these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is only in Luke's gospel that the narrative of the great banquet is found in Luke chapter 14. When I was a young pastor setting off in ministry, I was deeply impacted by a writer by the name of Dr. Jim Packer, J.I. Packer. I think all respective or respectable students used to have his book on the shelves, Knowing God. It's like if you didn't have Knowing God, you weren't a Christian. And um, but he, he's still, still alive, he's 93, I think he sits on the board of Regent in Vancouver, and he says the following. He says, by and large, Christians no longer live for heaven, therefore they no longer understand or practice detachment from the world. If the world around seeks profit, pleasure, and privilege, so do we. We have no readiness or strength to reject these objectives, for we have recast Christianity into a mold that stresses happiness above holiness, blessings here above blessings hereafter, health and wealth as God's best gifts, and death not as thankworthy deliverance from the miseries of a sinful world, but as the supreme disaster. Is our Christianity out of shape? Yes, it is, and the real reason is that we have lost the New Testament 
of two wills, or the, the lost the New Testament two world perspectives. This life as more important than this one. As one writer says that this life is training and preparation for the next. In the gospel we encounter a God who wants to welcome us home and he wants us to be excited about that. Some of you will know, some of you will not be interested, but previously to coming to New Zealand, um, I used to work for the Elam churches in New Zealand and I used to travel so much. I used to travel a lot and it was in in the very formative years of our our children growing up. So being away was incredibly poignant and we used to have to work at it. And we often say, oh, you used to travel a lot. What does that mean? In a period of 13 years, there were three times in the space of one week I was on all continents of the world. If you take out, you take that there are five continents and there are not seven continents. It would be nothing that I would be in church on a Sunday morning then fly out on a Sunday afternoon. I would go to Australia and I would be back the following week. On the following Sunday and that's what was normal for my life. I say all that to say this. It was a difficult time. It was a hard time. But when I used to get home, we would always have a celebration. We would always have a a celebration meal. And in turn, my kids would say that dad always got the chose, but I'm sure it's not true. But I I remember that we all used to take it in turn. And we would get the chance to sit down, be together, welcome each other back or welcome me home. Thrilled at being together, so delighted that we reunited as a family to catch up on one of each another's stories and just to talk and ruminate and laugh and cry together, that the family was together at last, that we no longer had to depend on email or text or Skype or FaceTime, but that we could see each other face to face, that it was good to be home And this is what we believe as followers of Christ, that one day, he's gonna welcome us home. One day, we're gonna be with him. One day, there shall be no more sadness, there'll be no more crying, there will be no more darkness, and we will be reunited, never ever to be separated again. He longs for our companionship, and Luke communicates this in his gospel. Musicians, please, come and join me. Luke tells us that God wants to put this eternal life, this hope, his son's life into each and every one of us and that one day he will welcome us home and we will be together for eternity. But until then, he wants us to display his character to those around us, that we may be involved in his ministry and his purposes and know his call upon our life to be the people that he has called us to be. So this is what Luke tells us about God, that he loves us, he wants us to have relationship with him, that he wants to see our joy, he wants to see our laughter, he wants the Holy Spirit to be involved in our life, but one day that we're gonna go and spend it with him, and that's the hope that we have, and the assurance that we look forward to. But in the meantime, that we celebrate the fact that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, he's ascended, and we await his coming again, that in the midst of joys, that we will be his people, even in the darkest of days. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.